Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Revelation. Tonight is study number 11 of Revelation chapter 3. And we're currently reading verse 4, which says, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And we discussed the fact that God cleanses his people, washes away their sin, and he He dresses them or clothes them in white raiment. And uh, that points to their purity. The color white in the Bible, normally we can say, as we find it used, is a color that pictures spiritually holiness or purity. Or to say it another way, that which is without sin. And and here it is being applied to those few names, and both few and names is pointing to the elect that were in Sardis. Yes, they, in that, historically, that church, they probably had a handful of God's elect. And as Sardis represents all churches, as the Lord, in addressing these seven churches in the book of Revelation, is also addressing the churches that will exist throughout the church age. And there certainly were elect in the congregations throughout the many centuries of the church age. Well, now we come to the last statement, the last part of verse 4, which says, They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, this is God. It's the word of God. And therefore, God is saying that his people... These few names representative of the elect are worthy. It's interesting that God is um, the one that is viewing his people as being worthy. We know that that God does not see any worthiness in sinners. But in, in this case, he is describing individuals that have received the grace of God. They have had their sins forgiven. They have been washed and cleansed from all iniquity. And as a result of this spiritual washing away of their sins or spiritual baptism, as that's, that's really what baptism points to, the washing away of sin as God saves a sinner, they are worthy. And yet it's interesting that as God at this time sees the worthiness of his elect through Christ and the Lord Jesus' work on their behalf and has applied it to them in salvation, that at the same time God is uh, looking upon them as being worthy, those elect people themselves are now beginning to see their sins by the Spirit of God's working within them through the fact that they have received the new resurrected soul and now have an ongoing desire to do the will of God. They're seeing their failures, their uh, lack of measuring up to the perfect standard of the law of God, and they are feeling most unworthy. You know, it says in Luke chapter 7, um, beginning in verse 4, And I'll read a few verses here. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, 
saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. Now, they're referring to a Roman centurion who had done some some nice things for the Jewish people. And, and they mention it in verse 5, For he loveth our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. And and the Lord uh, commends this individual, this Roman, uh, for his faithfulness. And and yet the Roman does not see himself as as worthy for the Lord himself to to come to him. And th- this is really the case with the believers as God begins to work within us and and we begin to understand our many transgressions. Uh, we we begin to feel as King David um, sorry for our sin, and it can be a time of mourning and and of brokenness and of being cast down in soul. And and yet it uh, very well could be all result of God saving us and making us worthy in His sight. And as he has done that, we begin at the same time to understand more and more our unworthiness. It says in Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, it says as he came to himself and began to think rightly in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. You see, the son is convinced of his unworthiness. I am no more worthy. And he most certainly believed it. He had been taught by God. God worked on him in, while he was in his sinful condition in rebellion against his father. God worked on him and humbled him and brought him low to see his wretchedness and desperate wickedness and, and his, uh, ugly sin condition. And, and yet the father, does the father listen to the son and say, yes, you're an unworthy son of, I'll allow you back to, but get over there with the servants and, and I'll, uh, give you the same wage as them. No, no, the father doesn't listen to the son's, um, declaration of unworthiness, but the father clothes him with the best robe. And of course, that would be the robe of Christ's righteousness. 
and puts a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and brings hither the fatted calf to eat because that fatted calf represents the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that was accomplished for the Son or who the Son represents, the elect of God. And we are unworthy, we we fully see, and yet it is at that time God is is um, recognizing our worthiness through the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist also made a similar statement in the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, in uh, verse 26, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose Shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. And this really is demonstrating the great humility of John. He was nobody and he knew it. He was no one special but a sinner that God happened to be using to pretell the coming of the Messiah and, and to make that grand declaration uh, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, the precursor to the coming of Christ after such a long time uh, of him being foretold by the prophets of 11,000 years. Yes, that was uh, a wonderful uh, thing for John to be involved with, and yet he didn't think that made him worthy in the least bit. He was unworthy to unloose the Lord Jesus Christ shoes latch it. Now, if someone has their shoes latch it unloosed, and that that is to take off their shoe, and that would be a picture of nakedness. Whenever we read of bare feet in the Bible or any uh, bareness, uh, physical nakedness, it is pointing to the exposing of sins. And John is saying, I'm not worthy that Christ be made naked or that my sins be placed upon him and he die the death for me. I am not worthy, in other words, of God's great and merciful salvation plan. I am not worthy to be one of his elect to be chosen. What what could have caused God to choose me over any other? And of course, that is true. That is true. We're not chosen as a result of our worthiness. And true believers understand this. We recognize that. We're not chosen or elect because of anything we've ever done or anything we ever could do. It's all the grace of God and according to his good pleasure in choosing whomsoever he desired to choose. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy and we're thankful for that, and we realize we're not worthy that Christ became sin for us and bore our iniquities to suffer the wrath of God that the law demanded, to die the death the law required because of us. And and so we see this is the nature of the true believer. Well, the child of God, even though the Lord says we are worthy and and that is our sins are forgiven, we are washed and cleansed and, and so on and made clean by Christ. 
yet the true believer never um, says of ourselves, oh, now we're worthy, oh God, to to uh, do this or that. But when we use the word worthy, we're always constantly looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in the next chapter of Revelation, chapter 4, in Revelation um, 4, verses 10 and 11, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. And why four and twenty? Why twenty-four elders? Well, because they're representative of the fullness of believers of the Old Testament, typified by the twelve tribes of Israel, and the fullness of the believers of the New Testament, typified by the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And, and therefore, these 24 elders are representatives of all of God's elect. The four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. There is where worthiness belongs. There is where worthiness is decreed to be. In the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou art worthy. He is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. He is worthy of all adoration, of all um, worship as as we will worship him in eternity future for all time forever and ever he is worthy deserving of that eternal worship by the people of god because of what he has done and who he is well let's go back to our chapter chapter 3 and we're going to continue on into verse 5 he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now again, again, God is using this word overcometh, and we've seen it a few times already, and actually it's a word that's used in each one of the passages of the seven addresses to the seven churches. The Lord is using this word overcometh, and it's a word that indicates victory triumph, the um, uh, winning of the spiritual battle. And the children of God, the elect, the few names in Sardis, who typify those elect that were in the churches during the church age, overcome. But again, and we need to stress this one more time, because God is stressing it by bringing up this very word. We do not overcome through our faith, or our effort, or our work in any way, we we would certainly be overcome ourselves. We wouldn't last very long at all if if we thought that we're the ones that win the battle, that we have to rise up and, and uh, put forth effort from our soul to live the Christian life and to be faithful. Well, we we would soon fall. As a matter of fact, as soon as we would think such a thing, we would fall instantly and into the trap of bringing worthiness to ourself and not declaring Christ as the worthy one. 
It says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, and this is how we define this word overcoming, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. So uh, the believers, the true believers are born of God. We're born again, born from above. And, and that qualifies us as overcoming the world. And yet, what did we do to become born again? We did nothing. We, we weren't the ones who took action and somehow, uh, stirred up ourselves and made a decision. Well, that's what the churches think. That's what they teach. And that's all false and completely wrong and dangerously wrong that, that leads to destruction. No, the Bible teaches it was God that took the action. It was God that saved us. He's the one that chose us, predestinated us to uh, become saved. He's the one that sent forth the gospel in order that we hear it. He's the one that then sparked life in our soul as a result of hearing his word, as faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's the one that then moves in us to will and do of his good pleasure. It's all of God. Salvation is of the Lord. We're saved not by our own faith, but by the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is uh, most jealous of this fact, and and so we we recognize it, and we uh, we want God to get all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. He did all the work, and we did nothing. Our role, if we insist upon having a role in the matter of salvation, all right, the Bible allows us to play a small part. And what is that part? Well, our role was to be the stinking dead spiritual corpse. That our role was to uh, lie in our iniquity and corruption, in the deadness of our stony heart. Our role in the matter of salvation was to be as Lazarus, a dead, stinking corpse that knew nothing, that was blind and deaf and dumb and could not walk or move. It had no life whatsoever. That is our role if if we uh, must uh, insist upon playing a part in God's salvation plan. Well, the Lord does permit us that part, because that is the part we play. We are the dead that God acted upon, as Christ said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. The Lord Jesus is the one who spoke the words. The Lord Jesus is the one who uh, somehow miraculously blessed those words to the dead ears of Lazarus. The Lord Jesus is the one that then brought him forth. And the Lord Jesus is the one who commanded his disciples to remove the grave clothes from him. And, and we are the privilege and blessed recipient of the working of Christ upon us. And that's what the Bible allows. And that's the only thing the Bible allows sinners in concerning salvation. So as it says here in again in 1 John 5, Verse 4, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory 
that overcometh the world, even our faith. Well, there you have it. It's our faith. Yes, there you have it. If you misunderstand the Bible, if you're careless, if you casually read the scriptures and you don't take into consideration everything else the Bible says, then yes, you may conclude it's our faith. But when we do more carefully and studiously and diligently and and very delicately take all the Bible into consideration, we understand that our faith is Christ. We are saved by the faith of Christ. We're justified by his faith and not by our own. Okay, uh, Revelation 3, 5 continues, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now God is is once again um, bringing up an issue we just finished looking at. We, we were just discussing this in the previous verse. And that means, since God is saying it again, well, now we don't have to read it or consider this. We'll just move on. Is that what it means? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that even though you know it, and I know it because he just told us and we just read it, that he will bring it once again to our remembrance in order to emphasize this to us again because we're very forgetful hearers and we we have uh, very severe limitations concerning the gospel and spiritual things. So God graciously is condescending to us to repeat himself. And, you know, uh, the truth is that I personally do not like repeating myself. And if you have that kind of problem, as I do, well, the Bible is the perfect remedy for you and me because God is constantly repeating himself. And as a matter of fact, that's what parabolic language does. It is basically saying the same thing. It's the same gospel again and again, but God is is saying it in different ways, and yet always saying the same truth. And he uh, he is not afraid to repeat himself, and he's doing it here. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now, we looked at a few verses about white last time, but let's go to another one in Revelation 6. It says in verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And the souls that are under the altar, as the altar here would represent Christ himself, they are picturing God's elect that were saved during the church age, the first fruits. And they're crying out, all right, how long, O Lord? And the response is that they must rest yet for a little season. 
And that little season is the period of the Great Tribulation. And then the indicator is that during the Great Tribulation, their fellow servants will be killed as they were. That is, during the church age, God's people were also driven out of congregations. They they were um, persecuted for holding on to the truth of the word of God. Just consider the time of the Reformation and how many were burned at the stake and how many uh, were pronounced as heretics and and so on. This This occurred to various degrees throughout the church age. And then when we reached the time of the very end of the church age, well, that driving out of the believers intensified. And spiritually, it was as though they were slain. Likewise, during the Great Tribulation, that would also happen to the rest of the the brethren, the fellow servants, this great multitude that God would save. They also would be driven out of churches. They also would declare to be heretics and and so on by those in the churches and 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 so on and so uh, they would be spiritually killed as well and and notice here that the souls under the altar had white robes every one of them and then as we read yesterday in revelation 7 verse 14 concerning the great multitude and they said unto him sir thou knowest and he said to me these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the souls under the altar, representative of the first fruits, all had white robes. And those saved, which came out of great tribulation, had uh, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. All are in white. Everyone that God has ever saved, all the elect are clothed and typified as being in white robes. And we find the sum total of all whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation 19, where it says in verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And that fine linen, it, we were told in verse 8 of Revelation 19, is the righteousness of saints, which comes from the Lord Jesus. And, and so uh, every one of God's people has that fine linen, white and clean. They have been cleansed from their sins. That is the marriage garment in that parable in the gospel of Matthew that the one individual lacked and, and he was cast out into outer darkness because he came in not having on a marriage garment. He was not in that, that pure holiness that, uh, that Christ cleanses sinners and clothes them with his own righteousness. And therefore he could not uh, remain in the marriage. Well, let's just look at one last verse in revelation chapter 15 And now we'll get a very good idea as to who the seven angels are, or seven messengers, where it says in verse 5 of Revelation 15, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was open, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. 
Hmm. Seven angels, angelos, which can also be messengers, come uh, carrying seven last plagues and they're clothed in pure and white linen, which means they cannot possibly be angels or angelic beings, spirit beings. They must be men, redeemed men, because it is only the uh, redeemed of mankind, the elect, that receive the pure and white linen, which is the righteousness of saints. There was no need for the angels that did not fall to be clothed in pure and white linen. 